You're listening to Getting Lit with Linda Mora, the podcast where we welcome you to get lit. Canadian lit, that is. Join Linda as she talks about authors in Canada and sometimes with them, using her expertise to shed some light on recent and not so recent writers. And now, get ready for Getting Lit with Linda. Hello, my dear listeners. This is Linda Mora, the writer and host of Getting Lit with Linda. I'm absolutely thrilled to announce that this podcast was selected by the 5th Annual Podcasting Awards as a finalist in the category of Outstanding Education Series. Now, as someone who's devoted her life to teaching literature in Canada, in the classroom, through my publications, and through this podcast, I couldn't be happier. As if my happiness wasn't complete, the Canadian Podcasting Awards also shortlisted Getting Lit with Linda in the category of Outstanding Arts. And again, given my own devotion to creative writing and the kind of crafting that even goes into these episodes, I really couldn't be more pleased. So a huge shout out to my producer, Marco Timpano, and to those who've participated in interviews with me for this podcast. I'm deeply, deeply grateful to you. If you are able to vote for our podcast, you'll find a link in our show notes that'll take you to the website where you can cast it. And now on to today's episode, for which I'm interviewing the gifted Montreal-based poet, Gillian C. Gillian has published several children's books and several collections of prose and poetry, including The Anatomy of Clay, published by ECW Press, Fishbones, published by DC Books, Peeling Rambutan, published by Gaspero Press, and the subject of today's interview, Quiet Night Think, published by ECW. I first met Gillian several years ago when she was a guest of the reading series I coordinate at the university where I teach. Because I live in Montreal, I habitually drive with writers back and forth from Montreal to the eastern townships, and In the car ride, we usually have these lengthy, engaging discussions about writing or relationships or about life in general. For example, one of my favorites, the late Stephen Heighton. On the way back from the eastern townships, he propped up his cowboy boots, yes, cowboy boots, up on my dashboard after asking me for permission first, of course. And sitting back, he kind of reclined the chair back a little, he spoke lovingly proudly about his daughter. It was this exquisite moment emblazoned in my memory that captured what a great human being, not just a poet and novelist, he really was. Well, when Jillian was in my car, we had similar discussions. We even discovered how much we both love fountain pens, for example, and what kinds we preferred and why. As it happened, there was a car accident on the Pont Champlain Bridge, one of the major bridges that takes people into Montreal City. And we were stuck there on the bridge at 10 o'clock at night until well into around 2 in the morning. Did Jillian complain? Did she react badly? No, she was grace under fire. We chatted and laughed until I was able to get her safely back to her place. I still think it no small wonder that she still speaks to me after such an ordeal. But she does, and she did for today's episode, which is an exploration of her new collection of poetry, Quiet Night Think. Heads up, you might hear some children laughing and talking in the background. These are my neighbors, not Jillian's children. 
And now, here is my interview with Jillian C. Jillian, welcome to Getting Lit with Linda. Thank you for having me, Linda. I want to start by saying how much I love this collection. It's ruminative. It has this compassionate approach. You quote Rilke on page 46 when you say poems are not simply feelings, they're about experiences. And I thought this is also true for the reader who picks up this book. They're not just about feelings, but experiences that we share with you or that we're invited to share with you the experience of sitting in the moon, which we'll talk about in a little bit, a reference to one of your poems. It specifically opens or calls upon your your lineage. In particular, you begin with a reference to a poem by, is it Libai? Yes. Okay. So I thought we should begin there for the readers who have not yet had the opportunity to pick up the book. Could you describe this poem for our listeners and explain how it might bear on or be relevant to the work as a whole? Thank you so much um, for such a a kind and generous reading, Linda. (laughs) I'm still processing all of your words (laughs) and reactions. Uh, So this Quiet Night Think, the title essay, it's actually the first piece that was written in this collection. And at the time when I wrote it, I didn't think it would be part of a larger project. I was just asked to talk about writing or like why I write or how I got to become a writer. And I found myself suddenly remembering this poem that I learned as a child in Winnipeg when I attended Chinese school on Saturdays. Every year we had a recitation contest, and this is one of the texts that we learned that we had to recite. Li Bai is an 8th century uh, Chinese poet, and the, the poem is, is very typically Chinese. It's very sparse, imagistic, highly imagistic, focuses on, on the concrete. So in the poem, the speaker is looking at the moon, mm-hmm. and upon seeing the moon, thinks about home and ultimately thinks about loss and, you know, the feeling of longing. And there, that's where you get quiet night, think, um, where, you, you know, think, <laughs> it, it is pretty much that. He's, he's, he's thinking quietly at night, or perhaps he's just thinking during a quiet night. I like that sort of um, play with, with um, the translation I, I provide. And so uh, I thought about that poem because it was really a, a very... Um, important moment for me in terms of how I how I engaged with poetry, how it affected me, and also how I tried to understand understand words. Hmm. Mandarin, I was learning Mandarin, which isn't even my mother tongue. I speak a different Chinese dialect. And so I felt like I was just jumping around a lot. And the memory I had was just trying to not only memorize a poem, which is very quite simple to do because it's only 20 characters, but also trying to understand what the poem meant. And so I was talking to my mother that Friday night, because obviously I was procrastinating before the dictation on Saturday, <laughs> um, and trying to get her to, to tell me what it meant, which is very, very hard for anyone to do in terms of translating, especially translating poetry. And so my mother... Uh, you know, who doesn't speak English. I mean, she does speak English, but it's not her first language. You know, mm-hmm. obviously struggled as well. And so we were struggling together um, to understand this poem. 
to parse it, which then becomes a kind of, well, I was going to say it becomes a kind of structural device, I think, for the rest of the collection, which I'll talk about in a minute. But I also thought about how it sets up the fact that poetry is also about relationships. Mm. So you talk about this poem or the family poem. Could you talk about that a little bit? Oh, yes. Yes. Um, so the generation poem is a, a very traditional Chinese custom where the, the elders of a family come together to compose a poem, a short text that will then map onto uh, each generation in the family. So the first generation, or I guess the earliest one, will have the first character incorporated into their name, which is typically two Chinese characters. And the generation that follows will take in the second character in the poem, which is then incorporated into their names, and so on, until mm. the poem is, is complete. I found this fascinating. I found this fascinating for so many uh, reasons, because I think it's, it's incredibly beautiful. It's incredibly beautiful. It's incredibly creative. Yes, I thought so too. And I, yeah, and I also found it, I found it amusing because poetry has become so central to someone's, to someone's name, to someone's family. And yet, growing up, my my parents, particularly my father, thought poetry was super fluffy. <laughs> like this what comes out, like, this comes yeah. out in the collection as well. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, he thought it was, uh, you know, I remember one time he said to me, yes, you will go and study medicine, you will be a doctor, and you'll just write as a hobby on the side, you know, <laughs> he just didn't think it was important at all. And so when he ta told me about the generation poem, when he told me my family has this generation poem, and he had his, uh, the family tree was bound in his book, and things like that, I thought, I was I was kind of stunned that he first of all that he never told me until I was older, but also that he didn't make the connection, you know, that, mm. that he's so proud about this generation poem, and yet um, mm. when I when I wanted to write poetry or when I was really in, engaged with literature, he thought it was it's, um, no big deal. <laughs> but that was also a function of gender, which also is a point yes. that you address in the collection that women mm -hmm. weren't really poets or weren't recognized as such. Right. That's a, another important point that I, I forgot to mention is that the generation poem is used to name the sons, so the male lineage. Um, and when I asked my mother about this, and I mentioned this in the book, she says, well, women are just married off, right? We just incorporate ourselves <laughs> into other families, so so that's why we don't have a poem. And, yeah. Which is, in a way, one of the reasons, again, we'll come back to this idea of sitting in the moon, but I love that you take this space, a space that that you invite the reader into and that we get to sit in in this space with you and really think about the generational poem and so forth. It's really works really well. I want you to go back to Levi's poem as a kind of, I think as a structural device. I saw it that way. So I noticed that there's this gesture of looking up at the moon or looking down and then experiencing nostalgia. Um, and that seems to me to frame the book, or more properly, it seems to be suggestive of the movement that seems to inform the narrative line as we move forward. So there's this looking up when you're pregnant and you're with your first son, uh, your first child rather, and you're looking up at the moon and thinking. And then as you move toward the end, there's a I'm not sure if I should, I feel like, is this a spoiler? I can, I can cut this part out if you think it is. But the last 
magnificent stanza in the book. It just moves through the last lens of space orbiting absolutely nothing, and I'm relieved to know that something so large can still wander. You're referring to M, who says that angels were earthbound, so it's a kind of collapsing of the upward gaze and that kind of downward-looking nostalgia, the two gazes somehow come together synergistically in that moment. I wonder if you could comment on whether or not I'm accurately. <laughs> that That is, I didn't even notice that. That's, I mean, I, I, I had the cosmic element, that shared element. I love, I love also just the, the dropping of the gaze that you notice between Emily Dickinson and Levi. Is that terrible of me to say that I didn't? notice that no no that's that's often does happen there's something that I think that writers will do that's intuitive and they don't even know that they're invested in this kind of pattern I agree but there is this cosmic looking could you perhaps talk about that a little bit well I I I can talk about just even just basic looking (laughs) um that was going to be another question so by all means, do so. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I had a conversation with a student, um, a McGill student, who was, I was quite honored, was writing a paper about my poems, and she talked about this looking and the, the concrete or the image in, in my own work. I think part of it was just maybe being younger uh, and being a little shyer, and so you spend a lot of time observing, yeah. noticing things that perhaps other people don't notice. I think that I've, I've, I've always had that just growing up, just kind of on the side, staring. <laughs> um, I don't think it's any surprise that my first book, Fishbones, is a collection of ecrastic poetry where I've, I forced myself to spend about at least 45 minutes in front of an artwork to, to you know, to look at it and, and to absorb it and to imagine what I was seeing, you know, uh, imagine narratives, imagine time, that kind of painting. That was a very fun process. I always tell people how, you know, security found me very odd. They were concerned. <laughs> they would in- increasingly, as the 45 minutes approached, they would just walk past me. Can I help you? And I'm like, no, I'm just looking. And so uh, I think there's, you know, that sort of everyday looking that also in the anatomy of clay in, in, the, in my second book where I spent a lot of time on commuting to work. So being on a bus, which is why there are so many urban uh, subjects, I think, in, in that book. Um, I don't know. Maybe that sounds kind of creepy. You know, this is <laughs> no, no, no. The first thing that we should do, though, is for some listeners who won't know what ekphrastic poetry is, could you explain that? And then I'd like to go back to yeah. the idea of looking. Yes. Um, so uh, ekphrastic poetry is a tradition of, of writing poetry that's actually inspired by visual art. So it's a, it's usually a poetic response to to a visual um, piece. I chose that actually as my my master's thesis just because it was just continually inspiring. You know, there's there's so much art out there. Mm. Um, I thought this is a great project because um, it's hard to get bored. <laughs> and so so yeah, so there there are some ekphrastic pieces in here as well in Quiet Night Thinks poetic response or a written response to, to something that I'm seeing. In terms of the, this cosmic looking, I think a lot of it just, you know, all these connections really happened by accident. Mm. I wrote Quiet Night Think, the essay, before I was even pregnant. Oh, no kidding. And so, it, yeah, I wrote it before I was pregnant. And so 
one thing I love about putting together a collection, um, after you write for some time, you can look at what you have and you start seeing these connections that you didn't notice the first time, similar to what you just did when you mm-hmm. made, when you noticed the Emily Dickinson and, and the gaze of Emily Dickinson and the, and the gaze of, of Levi. So I started thinking about not only Levi's experience in his poem, but also only, and this is only after I had my son and after I experienced the month-long postpartum care, um, these sort of connections, not only with you know, his, his gaze, what he was looking at, what he was feeling, thinking about origins, but also thinking about the quiet, thinking about the nights, thinking about thinking. <laughs> insomnia. Like I was thinking about how you talk about looking during bouts of insomnia, or in your case, in terms of maternal love, mm-hmm. you have to be awake every two to three hours mm-hmm. to feed that child. Yeah. And you begin to think about insomnia and people who are awake and want to sleep but are in this condition of suspension and looking yeah and then you share that experience with them and then I began to think about different kinds of looking in the text Mm -hmm. the flaneur the person who is not really the the person being or seemingly not being subjected to looking but Mm -hmm. walking around a city and observing but we're observing you as the looker right Yes. Right. So there's also that you're talking about Suzanne, who who says to his models, pretend you're <laughs> an, apple. Like an apple. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, and like th- this book was written, um, written slowly, actually, in the last eight years. It was wow. written quite slowly. It had to have been slow, though. There was a lot of anxiety also with my looking. You know, when I wrote Fishbones, mm. when I wrote The Anatomy of Clay, I didn't have children. I could write whenever I wanted to. I could be inspired in that moment, take notes, compose later, later that day even, you know. I was quite tortured in some ways by the things I was seeing because I was just too tired to write. So I had to change the way I wrote, you know. Uh, know, We're talking about fountain pens and and notebooks (laughs) and, you know, but then, you know, I had to suddenly use the light on my phone, the notes app, because that was the only thing I could Thing I could see in the middle of the night when it was dark um, and you, you wanted to write down something uh, and that was the only way and so I, I would take I would take notes but I just felt you know I felt too tired to to be witty too tired to be poetic so uh, what helped was uh, you know I only know realize this later what helped was being able to look back at those notes when composing quiet night sink just to refresh myself mm-hmm. on on the images I was noticing, on the things my children were saying, the emotions I, I felt. At the time when I was writing it, I just thought this is all terrible. Oh no, it's so good. You know? <laughs> no, it's so. I mean, I'm not. I'm not a mother. I was a caregiver for my parents, and I understand the kind of late night vigils, if you will, and mm-hmm. really thinking about things in this deep, slow, almost suspended state. It brings time to uh, to uh, I want to say to a halt, but everything moves really slowly. Yeah, and especially when you're the only one awake exactly. at night, and you can feel the house is sleeping. You can look out and see it's quiet, and and you're just there, awake and alert. Alert, and yes, yes, and and alone. 
that's what comes, it comes across. So for what it's worth, it has this kind of, I said contemplative, but also this intensity, uh, the collection as a whole, which is interesting because structurally, it's not just poems. There are these think pieces that are interspersed. So there's a kind of meta aspect Mm -hmm. to the collection as a whole. And so I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that, the fairly meta reflections that in some ways supercharge the poems. So these amazing reflections that then when you flip the page and are entering a poem, you come with all of this contemplation behind it. And then the the poem uh, almost is almost radioactive (laughs) as a result. Oh, I, that that's so kind. What a what a wonderful <laughs> reading experience that you're sharing. That that's re- that's really nice to hear. Thank you so much. Um, well, when I when I first thought about this book just as a book, I thought, you know, I really enjoyed writing quiet. I think I really enjoyed just returning to the sentence and and reflecting um, in prose. Um, but again, like I mentioned, when I wrote it, I I didn't even think it would be part of a larger collection. Um, when I submitted the grant application to the Quebec Arts Council, which they, you know, they kindly supported this project, I even proposed it would just be a, a book of essays. I thought it'd be just fun to, to do that. Um, and so I did spend time writing a series of, of essays. Um, hmm. And when it came time to putting together the book, I had these, these six essays I felt really good about, but it didn't feel like enough to be its, its own its own thing hmm. and then I and then I started looking at the other other uh, texts I was composing and I saw you know the poetry the, the prose poems the long poems and I thought you know it's all it's coming from this you know all one mind and I could see the the connection the connections in terms of subjects in terms of theme in terms of emotion and I thought why don't I create a hybrid collection because I can they're all written around the same time they all have the same thread and so and that's what I did so again that that, even that whole process was was accidental I just experimented and I had to think about time I had to think about narrative I had to think about where to place things so it made the most sense but also I really I really liked the the interruptions between genres Mm -hmm. as well because I think that's how it felt like parenting and writing at the same time. Just oh, I love that. Interruptions. And, and you know, th- this week, actually, I wanted to say this week, the whole household got sick. Oh, and, no. And, yeah, and so just even caring for the two, my two kids and trying to do really anything, <laughs> anything else, uh, it just felt, you know, it felt very appropriate to end the week talking to you <laughs> about the challenges of just parenting and writing or, or you know parenting and trying to be creative at the, at the same time and you know that that tension <laughs> I'm even more grateful now that that you've made the time to have the interview oh, with me knowing that that was I'm really happy to <laughs> to talk to to an adult <laughs> yeah this is great yeah so so yes I, I also like the the, the the sort of inter interruptions as, as well between the essays and uh, you know, it's, if I could sustain someone's attention for for that long, and then just you know these little shorter pieces as well. It was beautifully, beautifully done, as I say, for the reasons that I've oh, already suggested. You. you also interact with several different writers. Mm-hmm. We had started with Levi, 
but Emily Dickinson, and it becomes a preoccupation in the second half of the collection. Why, why Emily Dickinson? I, you know, I was studying for my comps, and I was reading her her poetry because that was my, you know, my focus is contemporary modern poetry, and I found myself diving into her biography and just, you know, other essays about her, um, just not the poetry. And I oh, I, interesting. I, I, there, there are just so many amazing lines and ideas about her, or or, or just you know, facts about her that I just, I had to write down. Um, and so Fricatives, the long poem that concludes Quiet Night Bank, um, uh, was written, uh, you know, around this, around that time, you know, I was visiting my, my parents in BC. I had just been reading, you know, biographies on Emily Dickinson. <laughs> There's just so many things about how I wanted to share that I, I felt, you know, this sort of strange affinity. Um, so I, that, that again was also accidental. Another thing I was considering when writing this book was not only parenting and writing, but uh, origins and mm. thinking about how I became a writer. I think this was really encouraged because I became a mother and I became this biological point of origin yes. for another person. Like I said, this book was written in the last eight years and Prior to that, there were a few things that was happening in Ken Lit that made me that made me think about about gender, about race, about uh, just the the steps you know in which someone becomes a, yes. a writer, about creative writing programs. And I think there's and this has been happening for sure, as you know, in Canadian literature, you know, this this need to or this desire to hear other stories I just know that well it made me think about my path to becoming a writer was certainly affected by having immigrant parents immigrant parents who didn't want me to become a writer yes this is clear and I think that, that shaped me I, I, I you know my father's utter doubt <laughs> in, in my in my choices to study literature when I was first accepted at Concordia, I wasn't even supposed to be in the English or creative writing program. I was accepted into actuarial mathematics with a minor in creative writing. <laughs> and did I tell you that story already, Linda? I'm not sure. It comes out. It, it comes out in these flecks yeah. in the collection. The role that your father plays. This is what I was saying, or what I was trying to suggest when I referenced how poetry is about relationships. In part, I was also thinking about your father and the way that your father is figured in your developing career as a writer. And again, this is addressed and flexed throughout the collection. He's important. Yes. I mean, just a few months ago, he even told me that I missed out on becoming a pharmacist. (laughs) (laughs) That opportunity, he squandered it. (laughs) I actually thanked him. I think it was this year I thanked him. I said, you know, if, if you didn't doubt me, that, that much or if you if you weren't so uncertain about um, you know the choices I made in terms of my education it's I don't think I would have pushed myself as hard to study literature to keep studying literature um, to, to write to, to put my work out there I, I really felt especially as an undergrad as an undergrad creative writing student you know there's a lot of anxiety to publish 
get started. I, yeah. I felt like I had nothing to lose. You know, I submit my work. They reject it. They reject it. But I had to try because my father didn't expect me to finish <laughs> finish a degree in literature. And so I I had to I had to try. And so it made me a lot more um, fearless, I think, than my than my peers. It comes out. The rejection already happened, I guess. The rejection <laughs> already happened. There was really nothing worse. Getting rejected by an editor is not as bad as getting rejected by your father. Who says, you know, he, I think it was the, the day I, you know, had to catch the plane in Montreal to go to school. He just said, listen, if this doesn't work out, I'll buy you a plane ticket home and and you're going to go back to studying medicine. That's, that's it. <laughs> All right. So yes, go have your little adventure. <laughs> I expect to see you home soon. I'm trying to find the passage where you actually present him with your MA thesis. Oh yeah, yeah I found it. Page 57. The book was newly bound and its spine was stiff. The short lines of my verse reached at most only halfway across the page. The pages themselves were woven tight. After my father took the book, examined both front and back covers and tested its weight, he thumbed through the pages and exclaimed, aghast at the blank spaces surrounding the poetry, there's nothing here. It's empty. <laughs> I know. Yeah, he, 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 I think he was expecting more prose in my poetry. <laughs> or something. For what it's worth, for what it's worth, when I finished my PhD, my parents were very proud, but my, um, I also have an immigrant background. And I was expected to go to university and do something professional, something. Mm -hmm. And but even so, when I a PhD was going too far. And so when my uncle saw me after I had defended my PhD and it was all done, his first response or initial reaction to me was, Now enough of this monkey business. Go home and take care of your parents. <laughs> It's, it's it's yeah absolutely I it becomes you know I find the humanities the arts it becomes a bit of a joke. <laughs> you are so respectful of your father. Well, it's very clear that you're struggling against these kinds of assumptions about what you can and cannot do, and that are particularly gendered. Of course, there is the aspect of race too. Mm -hmm. So the moment when your father says. Don't you think your students wonder what kind of accent you should have and the way that you are very saucy um, in your response? This is all captured beautifully in the collection. So your father should be very proud. <laughs> oh, thank you. I think he is in his own way. <laughs> uh, maybe I will pursue pharmacy. <laughs> no, 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 are you trying to torment me? <laughs> I know. And I and I showed him actually. You know, I had a really great question, which is, you know, when you when you're writing about people, do you show them your work? You know, how did they react to it? And I feel like it was very typical. My my father's reaction to just even the passages I highlighted him, you know, highlighted for him to you know look over. Oh, it was very you similar. Did do that. Yes, I did. I just wanted to make sure, you know, I did. I said, you know, here's some things I said about you know about our relationship. Here's the stories about you and your own experiences with your father that I've incorporated in here. How did he respond? Um, very similar to my MA thesis. It's very like, <laughs> oh yes, it is a truth. It is accurate. Mm -hmm. You know, <laughs> that was 
you know, he's <laughs> but uh, he was he was he was fine with it. But that that was it. That was his his reaction. I think he. I remember one time my my book Peeling Rambutan is based on uh, my first experience of China mm. and. One of my aunts actually said to my parents, "This is kind of nice that Jillian is taking notes. She gets to, she gets to record. She gets to archive. You know these, these experiences, these moments, these stories. And I, I sometimes think, I think that maybe those words affected him because that is really what I, I think I'm doing when I'm writing, even for my children when I write about them. Maybe one day I'll embarrass them. I don't know, <laughs> but." but uh, it, it is, you know, all writing is a, a kind of, you know, a recording. So. You're creating, I think, a different yeah. kind of generational poem, if you will, a, a different kind of a, a lineage that still, I think, links with that kind of tradition, but opens up something new. Yeah, yeah, so. so we should probably turn to that moment about sitting in the moon, mm -hmm. which I opened the interview yeah. with, and maybe tell listeners what that means for you and how it works in the collection as a right. whole. So. Chinese postpartum care, which is something I kind of had no choice but to go through. I don't think my mother really gave me a choice. It's just <laughs> is a, a like a, a month long. I want to say house arrest, but it's a month long <laughs> uh, care in which the new mother is expected to stay inside the home and go on a very specific diet to rebalance her energies after exerting herself labor. And there's a, there are a number of, of rules. Some I followed, some my, my mother let go. So things like you're not allowed to, to bathe or wash your hair. Um, you're not allowed to go outside. You have to, uh, you're not allowed to read. At all. You're not allowed to touch cold water. Mm -hmm. um, you should actually ideally stay in bed the whole time. You're only, the, the new mother's job is only to care for the, for the newborn baby. And, you know, I, this, this makes sense in many ways, because when you think about the villages, obviously the health of the baby is really dependent on the health of the mother. Um, and so we don't want the mother to catch a cold or catch any sort of chills, because then, you know, if she's weak, the baby will be weak. And so lives depended on this, this care. And so my, my mother, uh, prior to her arrival, you know, while I was pregnant, she was she was chopping up ginger. That's the particular food, mm. hot food. <laughs> that's uh, you know particular to my to, to the province my parents are from in China. She was you know she was frying it until it was brown, almost black. You know, and I was supposed to add it to everything uh, I ate, and it it upset my stomach actually because it's so intense. Um, I, I know that I started to. I was allowed a little bit of rice wine with my with my dinner as well, you know. Around I thought that was pretty cool. That part that was great. <laughs> that was great. Yeah, I <laughs> get a little nice little buzz. Uh, one of my favorite foods that my mom made was uh, this fermented rice uh, uh, oh, yeah. soup. Yeah, so she would make rice. She would add a particular yeast to it and find a sunny spot in the home so it could ferment. Um, and the longer it fermented, the sweeter it was. And it was one of my favorite things to, to have in the mornings I'd wake up after just after nursing my my son going downstairs and it'd be ready this, this, this lovely delicious um fermented rice dish sometimes she would put egg in it sometimes she would also 
simmer it with these black sesame balls that she had, you know, uh. she had made. So she put in a lot of work and, and care into into this. And it was it was really hard at least for at first for me to go through this because I was so so used to being independent, mm. wanting to go outside. It was June, it was beautiful weather, um, festivals were taking place, you know, people were inviting me and the new baby out. My mother was like, absolutely not. <laughs> you know, what is no, no, you will not leave the house until a month later, you know, and and the other thing that also I think it was part of the struggle in terms of seeing myself as a writer while being a new mother was that 10 days before I gave birth to my son, I defended my PhD. So up until then, I was used to being a full-time student, reading, writing. And then 10 days later, I'm a full-time mom, and I'm not allowed to do any reading. I'm not allowed to you know, do anything. And so that, I, I really struggled, I think, with that. It was quite abrupt. I really embraced it, I think, the second time I did it when my daughter was born. Mm. Because by then I thought, I, you know, I already had, you know, I was already a mother to my son, and I was, it was a toddler, and it was exhausting. So I really enjoyed that, that break. <laughs> the sitting in the moon is partly that, but it's also, mm-hmm. but it's also about this kind of hiatus that yeah. also then a allows you to recover the space that's now been vacated by your son right but is also one that invites this contemplative mode Mm -hmm. and I feel like that that is in a way what your collection does as a whole it invites us into that contemplative space to sit in the moon with you and really consider the world from this point of view Mm-hmm. No, I, I, again, it's only just after your writing, after the book comes together, you really start to see the sort of number of spaces I'm talking about, you know, um, the poetic space, the space of, of new motherhood, um, new parenthood, uh, the space within the body that I'm supposed to shrink back, you know, after having the baby by eating all of these hot foods, you know, um, the space of origin. Yes, exactly. Um, and the space of origin. You know, the outer space. The writing happens because of what real case is, what the experiences that you have. Um, eventually, mm. everything coalesces mm. in some beautiful, cosmic, magical way. And, and I'm so grateful <laughs> for that. Well, thank you for this beautiful, cosmic <laughs> experience of Quiet Night Think. I, which I really enjoyed. Thank you, Jillian, for joining me today on Getting Lit with Linda and talking to me about your wonderful Thank book. Thank you so much, Linda. That was Getting Lit with Linda, hosted by Linda Mora. If you have a topic you would like to hear covered, write to us at gettinglitwithlinda at gmail.com. Until next time, we hope you continue to get lit.